Me? My heart is an open book. Hey, friends. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Sorry for the delay on this one. A couple, three reasons. The final episodes take longer to synthesize and think about. And I got sick. Those of you that listen to this enough can probably tell from my voice. Um, Thankfully, not the coronavirus, but an unrelenting bug nonetheless picked up at the Petri dish of my son's preschool. But I was able to prepare material for the next few episodes, so I'm going to get a bunch out sooner rather than later. Okay, find yourself a luxurious place to lounge, and let's do this. Luxury lounge, or alternate title, rival restaurants. Either way, plenty of alliteration to go around. This episode originally aired April 23rd, 2006, written by the great Matthew Weiner, directed by Danny Liner. Sadly, he passed away a couple years ago. Among many other things, he directed two cult favorite stoner films, Dude, Where's My Car? and Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. The latter, a nice tie back to the show in the form of Junior. Also, Harold and Kumar takes place in New Jersey as well. HBO synopsis, Artie's business is jeopardized by a rival restaurant and a scandal that leads to a fight with Benny. Told to make peace, Benny winds up giving the volatile Artie a hand with his tomato sauce. Meanwhile, Christopher and little Carmine take a wild trip to L.A. to pursue Sir Ben Kingsley to star in Cleaver and enjoy a swag grab at Lauren Bacall's expense. Different opening, different venue, different people. Two Italians, fresh off the boat, discussing the Twin Towers, how they want to go see the site. Of course, it's the hitmen that were set up last episode. They're here to clip Rusty. So, again, different venue, people, director, all the makings of a different kind of episode, end-to-end. And that's exactly what it is, as we'll see. Panned, by the way, by most critics at the time, I think it's aged incredibly well. And the product placement overload is nostalgic now, if anything. Corky pulls up. They all get out to transact. Give instructions. Get instructions. Some people do this in an office. Others via Zoom. And still others on park benches alongside a river. They're in front of a body of water, the Passaic River, across from the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. All of Newark's great luminaries are buried there. Among them, someone Johnny Sack could give two fucks about, the inventor of patent leather. There's a picnic table, which made me wonder, are they about to do their own version of a sit-down at a picnic table? like Carmine Sr., Johnny, T, and Chris did earlier? Not quite as cinematic, but the essence of it is there. Corky's tentative, twitchy, great acting. Prefers to speak English, but dusts off the Italian 
when he realizes it's a safer play. You know, parabolics. Birds chirping in the background. Regularness of life always humming. Note how as soon as the Italian starts flowing, the vibe instantly becomes real one. Michael in Sicily. The color palette. Not quite the old villa he stayed at, but the Passaic did just fine. Corky gives them their tools of the trade and the address. 134 DeWunter Terrace, Brooklyn. Real location is right off the Verrazano Bridge on 85th Street and 11th Avenue in Brooklyn. DeWunter Terrace isn't a real street, but I think it's a nod to Terry Winter. Flipped. It even sounds like it when Corky says it. But what am I, an audio expert forensic witness now? Corky refers to Rusty, their target, as the man with the long horse face. Bojack Horseman over here. Indulge me on the overhears, okay? Only a few more left, and they just won't stop manifesting. What are you going to do? Then Corky says, the fish have been cleaned, referring to the guns, the dumb gats. Corky does his own version of leave the gun, take the cannolis. The guys question Corky's Italian bona fides. Is he in danger now too? On account that he's a witness? As he peels off, we cut from one ostensibly suspicious Italian to as full-throated one as they come, Phil Leotardo, at a big dinner with pretty much the whole New Jersey crew, and then some. A lot of group dinners over the next several episodes, taking on an especially bygone flair in this new era of social distancing. They're there to celebrate opening the books for Bert and Jerry. Bert Gervaisi, played by Artie Pasquale, doesn't say a whole lot, but he doesn't look like one to trifle with either. He has a certain Norman Bates quality to him, meaning something's off kilter, askew from the get-go. He and Carlo are cousins. Then there's Jerry Torciano, who we've already been introduced to, of course, Phil's protege. Phil stands up, says it's an honor to be joined by men. Emphasis on men, at which point he explodes about Vito and that whole situation. His anger about it is notable and becomes part of the story going forward, and not just because Vito was married to his cousin. His recoil of the whole situation, coupled with his 20 years in the can, raises questions. Even though T said, guys like that, in that situation, get a pass. Anyway, guys around the table are getting restless, hangry, waiting excess time for food. Eggplant takes time, though, to get it right. Still brings up Artie, says his game has been off lately, like Rajon Rondo, until the playoffs. Everybody's attacking Artie. He's getting it from all sides now. Recall last episode, Angie and Gabby. Just then, he pops in, apologizes for the delay, says he's breaking in a new guy on the line. The business 
of inserting new line cooks. Got me thinking about Anthony Bourdain and his book, Kitchen Confidential. A book that, among other things, taught me what kind of knives I needed to have at home. Oh, and a mandolin, too. Artie kind of gets his own Kitchen Confidential moment this episode. I'd like to imagine what a conversation between him and Bourdain might be like, assuming they ever sat down together to swap war stories. Back to the heart of the matter, more appropriately, the stomach of the matter. His explanation notwithstanding, guys aren't feeling the excuses. Phil asks him if he's been to Da Giovanni in Troy Hills, also known as Parsippany, a township in Morris County. It's where the Vince Lombardi and Larry O'Brien trophies are handcrafted every year for the NFL and NBA, respectively. I believe I referenced Daniel LaRusso last episode, you know, the karate kid. Anyway, he had an uncle in Parsippany, too. Apparently, the place is great. Da Giovanni's, that is. Can turn fish-averse folk into ravenous consumers. All about that agrodolce. Sweet and sour sauce. Artie calls the proprietor of that restaurant a kid. This just after Phil said, it's an honor to be in the company of men. Funny little symmetry there. But also, Artie's doing what any NBA all-star does when there's new blood in the league and they bust a stat sheet out on them one game. It's a combination of great talent for a young guy or outright who? That old blue ocean strategy of believing your competition is irrelevant. Then, food arrives on cue. The miracles of modern television beats. And we cut to Tony and Chris walking to their cars. Note, this episode will compare and contrast the plights of Christopher and Artie in a series of back-and-forth sequences, elegantly done. One guy on the inside, and another on the out. But their relative dispositions are very much the same. Disillusionment with their lot in life and desperately seeking something else. And a deft connection is made. Both can taste the respective luxury lounges they envy, but they can't ever have the full-course meal. Tony can't believe Phil's histrionics about Vito. Again, setting up that point of differentiation between the way Phil perseverates on this issue and everybody else. The only person who comes close is Carlo. And all due respect, Carlo's pretty irrelevant. Chris refers to Vito as la cage au fat, an uber-clever play on la cage au folle, a play that was later adapted to film, translates roughly to The Cage of the Mad Woman. This episode, of course, penned by the writer and creator of the series, Mad Men. It's a story about a gay couple nominated for three Academy Awards and won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. That success led to two sequels, and eventually a 1993 American remake 
The Birdcage, that, quite frankly, took most of the original's thunder thanks to a legendary cast pairing of Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Carla walks up, speak of the devil. Love how Weiner talks about the ability to start ideas here. The characters are just so rich that you can move from one thing to the next, and the audience can follow. Says he's going to get a P.I. on it, a real good one. One that can track down to the granular level of a kernel of a corn lodged in a sample of stool. When did this guy become Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant? But seriously, he's invested in this. The work stoppage at the job sites are hurting his bottom line. Tony says to ease up, makes a joke about CSI. More of a statement than anything. But Crystal gives a dumb laugh as if it were a punchline of Rodney Dangerfield proportion. But as we see, it's really a conduit to get to his main business of the day. A trip to L.A. Carmine set up something for their film. Tony asks if it's business or time off. Clever way to ask, are envelopes getting kicked up or what? Chris says time off from here, New Jersey, but definite business. Says the meet is with Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley. A.K.A. Gandhi. His first real role, by the way. True story, he's actually of Indian origin. Real first name is Krishna. Of relevance to the show, also played Meyer Lansky in 1991's Bugsy. Was opposite Liam Neeson in Schindler's List. And one of my favorites, including the book too, House of Sand and Fog. Tony, great response. So you're going to go get an autograph on the uh, weekend of the Notre Dame-Michigan game? I got my guys all over. Notre Dame won that year, by the way, 47-21, and were five-and-a-half-point favorites. Chris says he's got it covered, and that getting Sir Ben attached would make the film a go. The term attached has no official meaning. Nobody really knows exactly what it means. But it's oftentimes enough to generate momentum, to get something made. People traffic in the word attached, like Polly traffics in what do you hear, what do you says. Chris is real high on Little Carmine and the progress they've made together. And you can't fault his hype. I've been there too. I feel like a lot of us have. The initial momentum of things like that are intoxicating. And you think the people in the mix are really going to get shit done. Make it happen. Negative energy like Tony's here is a slippery slope. Tony calls little Carmine retarded. I feel like that word's been applied to him before. Maybe that was just Chris talking to Adriana about being able to multitask. Chris says, you agreed to this in the hospital. He knows he really didn't, though. He just assumed he could slip one through the cracks at a moment of vulnerability. Ask for forgiveness later, kind of a thing. Tony says, I was in a coma. At which point Chris says, fine, he'll cancel. Pouts like a teenager when Tony softens. That's all it took? Just one look? Chris closes the deal by saying he's going to make him a lot of money. 
lingering question with him, as always is, at what cost? Tony gives him a couple fatherly taps on the cheek, and we cut to the end of the road for Rusty. Guy doesn't even get to go out to his own music. He's backing out of his driveway when he's cut off by Mario and Luigi. Sorry, just had to work that in. Note their car changed from a red car to a blue SUV. These guys are real pros, shedding tails like Jason Bourne over here. One of the Mario brothers goes up to the car asking for directions to the Brooklyn Museum, to which I thought, these guys are in town for 24 hours and a couple, three Winslow Homer paintings are on their itinerary? Rusty's wife comes out to remind you, of course, that this is Rusty in case you forgot. Shouts down for him to remember to call Marissa, his daughter, I'd imagine. All this tension, all this simple action coming from all sides. We know and sense and feel what's about to happen, but the incorporation of everyday real-life elements still heightens our immersion and our nail-biting. The asking for directions, the car blocking the driveway, the wife shouting down, the tense-filled exchange, Eastern Parkway versus Belt Parkway, and then bang! First the driver, then Rusty. Comedy amidst the chaos. In what feels like an homage to something, the car, apparently in neutral, rolls back into the street. Love the linger there for a beat. As we cut to... By the way, how did the wife not hear those three clips when she was outside not two seconds earlier? Also not for nothing, but three clips. Back at Artie's, we overhear a civilian group enjoying dinner and conversation. When he interrupts, asks about the veal. Right at the outset, let me bring this up. When has Artie interrupting ever been a real thing? I mean, he's chatty, but a character flaw? You Sopranos, you go too far. Wait for it. He's explaining his technique to a less than interested crowd. Justifying. Differentiating. Clinging. That Giovanni guy down the way has gotten into his head much more than he'd like to admit. Same way Marlo Stanfield did to Stringer Bell. He walks over to the bar, sees Benny, Moe, and Jack. A.K.A. Chris, Benny, and Murmur. A reference, I think, to the Pep Boys, Manny, Moe, and Jack, the three founders of the company. First store came out of Philly. Can't help but think he meant to refer to them as the Three Stooges, though, given his current temperament right now. But they were, of course, Moe, Curly, and Larry. Says, you got a quorum. Let me get you a table. But what's quorum got to do with anything? Is Artie doing seating minimums now? Benny's good with where he is. Eyes firmly locked on Artie's Albanian hostess, Martina. Gotta say, visions of a little Chris Adriana 2.0 going on over here. Hostess at a restaurant. Benny climbing the ranks. Christopher's number two. 
Cut to a car ripping through a parking lot. Same lot from an earlier season. The one with Tony at the bird feed store, the cracked corn, and the Italian restaurant next door, where he dined with Zellman. Season 4 premiere, was it? For all debts, public and private? A lot of prior season, prior episode, lookbacks this episode. Murmur walks in. The guy behind the counter hands him something, a black card reading device, holding, of course, credit card information. Murmur pushes over an envelope of cash, takes a piece of topping off a pizza, and walks out. Note a kid's soccer team is dining there, little detail, and a family of four. Completely intentional, right? Innocent patrons getting fleeced without even realizing it. Cut to the bing. Murmur walks over to the two Middle Eastern guys who wanted the Tech Nines from Chris. He slides over the credit card numbers. Says he can do it that way going forward for some extra cash. Ever entrepreneurial, they want to keep their variable costs down. Says they'll keep it strictly via internet. Cloud computing, Damascus style over here. Cut to Dodge Giovanni's. Place is rocking in the middle of the day. Ginny Sack is there, first and foremost. Prominent. Tony and Carmela, too. Carm can't believe they're gnocchi. She's raving about it. The food's fresh, inspired, meticulously prepared. Imagine how good it must be if Carm is raving about it. Tony, meanwhile, feels like he's cheating. His stomach's uneasy for more reasons than one. Recovery, but also eating out other places. But recall, at the top of the season, Tony and Carm were in love with that sushi spot. Vesuvio's his place, and it always will be. He tells us that later. But dining out's to be expected every now and then. We personally keep eating at the same four to five places on rotation, even if we're only ordering in. It's mostly the same few places. Then they overhear Vito Jr. being accosted by other kids on account of his father. Word travels fast. Love the contrast here. Unrelenting mob of adolescents can be more suffocating than the mob itself. Marie Spadafore separates them and then begrudgingly leaves. Perhaps thinking the same thing Christopher said in the backseat of the car after the doctor conclusively confirmed Adriana likely didn't go down on Tony. I gotta live in the world. Carmela opines. She can't hide her face forever. It would be like admitting something was wrong. Carmela, perched on her high horse as ever. Just then, Silvio and Gabby come sit down with plates. They're in love with the place too. Then Phil. It's revealed this was all for his grandson's confirmation. Real quick, Christianity corner. Confirmation is the ceiling of Christianity created in baptism. It's a sacrament or rite of passage. So what's the effect? Supposedly, a shot or infusion of the Holy Spirit. Tony wonders, all the places in Brooklyn? You got to come all the way out to Jersey to celebrate? We, of course, know how he feels about meddling. Remember when Johnny Sack bought a house in New Jersey? 
Fucking meddling sucks so much in general. What's the antidote? Let me make a little reminder here to bring that up next time I'm in therapy. Phil raves about the food, too. Enough already. Says it's worth the detour. Calling Jersey a detour wasn't an accident for Phil. It's a highbrow dig at Tony and his domain. He wonders if there's a problem. Knowing full well, that kind of already is. Love some Phil, man. Took the mold of Richie, made it his own, and then some. He pulls T aside, says Johnny Sack thanks him for the recent headlines about Rusty. Headlines? This thing of ours, Times? They're a private Substack or Slack channel these guys are all a part of? Tony denies it, says he turned him down. Phil says, you're a cautious man. Continues, some might be offended, but his heart is an open book. I didn't know what to make of that statement, but I wanted to make something of it. I later learned it was a lyric from the song, Live and Let Die. That's right. Wait for it. Axl Rose over here. Now that I got that out of my system, we also know it, of course, as the song created by Paul McCartney and his wife, Linda, and performed as Wings. Became a super successful Bond anthem. Tony's lips are sealed. He's just listening. Carry over from the storyline episodes ago, where, of course, he chose to insulate himself from this from the get-go. Phil says they'll chalk it up to a headless horseman. There's another Ichabod Crane reference. And another thinly veiled dig. Referring to Tony as the same headless horseman that took out Tony B. Also note how Phil opens his jacket, perhaps revealing he's not wired up for sound. Just then, Giovanni comes out to a standing ovation. Artie was right. He is just a boy, with a full head of hair too, rivaling Jerry Torciano. But all that adulation? For some fucking yoki? I mean, make the guy earn it, I say. Put him in a pressure situation. Do the equivalent of giving him the ball down one with 13 seconds on the clock and let him sink a game winner before crowning him the king of Bloomfield Avenue. Cut to Artie's empty restaurant. The contrast is especially apparent here. Also a metaphor. Empty on the outside as well as on the inside. This needle can be thread to Christopher too, who later we'll see picking at breakfast in a hotel room, alone on the other side of the country, after learning he didn't have the makings of an A-list talent attacher. Music's blaring in the background, to me, the song from The Family Man, the movie with Nicolas Cage and Taya Leone. Always find a way to rewatch that one during the holidays without fail. Anyway, the song is La La Means I Love You by the Delphonics. He sees Martina getting intimate with Benny. This 
jealousy and simultaneous lust for a member of his pit crew? We've seen this storyline a couple of times before, too. Adriana and Elodie. And with that, Artie pulls her aside to tell her that her green card status is in jeopardy. His cousin, who was going to push it through, couldn't deliver. Red, if I can't have you, Benny can't either. And if I can't stop him outright, I'll just hurt you instead. Cut to the bing. Tony comes in, says hi to the Middle Eastern troop before heading over to a forlorn Artie, indicating he knows who they are, by the way. Discreet on some things, but not others. Artie's feeling down, considers Tony's power and privilege to do as he pleases, when he pleases. First, in the form of the dancer in front of them. He could have her, but not Artie. There's a distinction. The first glimpse of the distinction of regularity versus Tony. Artie's real issue, source of hurt, is that he overheard a bunch of them had a meal at Da Giovanni's. Tony says he was going to tell him, but it was for Phil's grandson's confirmation. That's all. The only reason. What? Phil couldn't have done it at Vesuvio's? But it's what friends do on some level, right? Heck, family too. Lie to avoid escalation. Hurt feelings. Resentment. Fashion aside, Tony's shirt, scribbled in shapes, wearing his back-of-the-napkin strategies on his sleeve. Literally. Tony plays Giovanni's down. Lies. Says Carm got a little sick after. Artie says that Gabby said he should check it out. Maybe learn something. Tony then quotes Biggie, albeit likely inadvertently, lays into how she runs her mouth. But Artie knows Tony's blowing smoke. Got sick? Remember, Artie's Mr. Permutations guy. Removing cobwebs with a scythe. Tony says it was a business obligation. Last time Artie heard that, he reminds us, he had to call the fire department. There's an oh rim shot for the ages. Not to be outdone, Tony's got one of his own. Well, maybe you need another fresh start to fuck up. At which point Artie throws money on the table and starts to leave. Tony tries to stop him softens like he did for Chris moments ago. Artie insists, says he knows where his heart is. And that's a true statement. He's one of the few people, if not the only person, who can say that with any degree of accuracy. Says he has to go plan the menu. But cut to Artie at home in the bedroom, still downtrodden, talking to Charmaine. Note the bottle of red affixed to the wall behind him. He's talking about the restaurant business. A guy called Fasanella, Artie's old man's meat guy. Another Satrial? That guy used to hook them up. Charm misses him too. Current guy's leaving them with non-choice cuts of meat. She had to cut three inches off the Fiorentinas. That's a style of beef. A little marbling here and there is okay, but That feels like excess waste. 
she then pivots to his conversations with the guests, the real issue. Which, if you ask me, is subjective. But she handles it well. Not like her old self. She's trying in this reconciliation phase. Nevertheless, he flips. Says, New Jersey Zagat called him a warm and convivial host. Zagat's now part of the infatuation was originally sold to Google about 10 years ago for the warm and convivial price of $150 million. From smashing his head into a pillow, we cut to Santa Monica, California. Carmine and Chris are checking into their hotel, the Viceroy. Still one of the most choiciest hotels in L.A., currently undergoing a $21 million renovation. Carmine says, Lunch, poolside, with Kingsley, confirmed for tomorrow. When you say things like that in L.A., you make it no big deal, just like that. Carmine, for all his flaws, wears the biz hat well. Come see, come saw about the whole thing. But Sir Ben Kingsley, how'd he pull it off? It's a favor owed thanks to Carmine helping this guy out of some trouble on a party yacht in the Keys. Now there's a limited series waiting to happen. Carmine wants to hit the bar, decompress. Middle of the day, mind you, but hey, when in fucking Rome. Says he doesn't want to make Chris uncomfortable. Of course, after bringing up his reaction when the flight attendant dropped champagne down on their tray tables. Chris notices a girl, says he's cool, whatever. He's got his own version of decompression in mind. Back over at Artie's, he didn't listen to Charmaine. He's interrupting two lovebirds with what we'll come to see as canned. He has a knack for seizing on lovebirds. Speaking of lovebirds, he sees Benny and Martina having a grand old time on his watch Again. By the way, is that Stan Getz playing in the background? It's certainly his tone. He goes over to her to make sure she's clipped the daily special cards to the menus. Minutia. You know, like Irina said, to let her know where she is on the pecking order. Then Benny calls him over. Asks why he's kicking her ass like that. Artie's thinking, what, she on your payroll now? They get into it, passively. People, persons who give treats or severances, depending on the kind of person. Artie's not amused. He's got an invisibility cloak in the form of Tony Soprano, and he knows it. But here, that's also coupled with a little of the misanthrope in him. He could give two fucks about the world right now, especially these guys. And Benny? Fucking Benny's got nothing to say about it. Yet. Charmaine to the rescue says he's got to plate the salmon. You think she knew about the rap battle that was about to go down right there? Artie's disgusted by the whole thing on account that Benny's a married man. Showing us, of course, that even civilians in this world are guilty of hypocrisy the driver of this world and all its characters at every turn. 
Charmaine calls him a hood, Benny that is, and says he's got a right to be protective of her. She's never on Artie's side. No wonder he's gone south. Not Boca South, but you know what I mean. Also, love how she's framed in this shot. At the top and bottom, by the kitchen shelving, and stacked dishes. Almost has a Goodfellas, Copacabana feel to it. Cut back to Chris in L.A. Doing L.A. Lines of Coke. Loved that I learned it's called skiing, thanks to the show. He's with that girl we saw in the lobby, wasting no time taking her shirt off. Oh, but he didn't charm her, knock her off her feet. She's a pro, and an expensive one. He negotiates a little. She relents. He brushes his teeth with some coke, and then explores her torso. Cut from an L.A. dinner to a New Jersey one. Tony at Vesuvio's alone. He's waiting on Carlo, stuck in traffic on account of a supposed sniper on Route 23, currently known as the Heroin Highway. Tony chats with Artie about spicing things up with promotions for what Artie refers to as Gomer douchebags. Tony gets moody, and Artie finishes with, he'll give this place back to the bank before turning it into a fucking IHOP. IHOP, of course, was referenced and explored a little back in in Camelot. Then he comes back with, you want to help me? Pay your tab. Oh, he went there. Did he forget about the Armagnac thing Tony bailed him out of? And how that essentially wiped his tab and enabled him to eat free going forward? The specifics and particulars are unclear, but it was something in that ballpark. Tony, rightfully, excuse me? Artie explains, entertainment in the form of Pat Cooper gets paid for a Barone sanitation celebration, but the food services get stiffed. I think he's talking about Pat Cooper, the comedian, who is famous for his Italian heritage stand-up routines. Tony waits for the waiter, ponders it all, as we cut to a car pulling up outside what looks like Titleman's Motel at first sight, if you remember back that far. Murmur walks in, doing a lot of rounds this episode. Ah, makes sense now, on account that Chris is skiing in California. He's singing a Hasidic version of Elton John's Daniel, as timeless a song as there ever was. Hands the Hasid at the counter a fistful of cash. It is Titleman's Motel who in turn hands him back the same black contraption he got from the pizza place. The container or receptacle filled with credit card numbers. Counter Hasid looks around briefly, files the funds under his scripture, and goes back to his religious devotion. Just another ironic Tuesday. Love it. Even layered nuanced irony in that the Hasids are essentially enriching the Arabs in this transaction, downstream. Cut to Vesuvio again. I know I said last episode I couldn't get enough Artie, but this is becoming another level. Also, originally remember feeling uncomfortable, like his time was numbered on account of the excess screen time. 
Two guys from American Express come in to look into some irregularities in charges at Vesuvio. They call it Nuevo Vesuvio. And Artie, of course, corrects them. Nuovo Vesuvio. They're blunt. There is credit card fraud going on at this restaurant. People's card numbers were copied and then used to rack up thousands of dollars in phony charges. Love the choice of the word locus. Authentic accents with SAT words. Perfection. They have to suspend the charges at the restaurant pending further investigation. Artie gestures to Charmaine that they're being cut off. In the pantheon of hand gestures on this show, his was a cut above. Same way he slices that veal with a straight razor. This is a big deal. 30% of his business, at least. Cut from one bald head to another, Artie to Sir Ben Kingsley, on the phone with his guy, Jay, asking why he's meeting with these chaps from New Jersey. Whatever the reason is, his response, bollocks. Literally, testicles. But colloquially over the last 800 years, more like nonsense. He shows two outfit options to, I think an assistant, and then heads down to the pool. Cut to Chris, Carmine, and Sir Ben Kingsley chatting. Well, Carmine is trying to. Sir Ben is looking in the other direction holding his phone up, mind you, before smartphones. So he's not really able to do much with it other than text or stare at digits, all of which he's giving the indication that he'd rather be doing right there and then. Carmine cuts to the chase, no pun intended. The ring meets the godfather. They want Ben to play the boss. He says, as ever, it's script-dependent. What, attaching on the strength of the producers alone isn't enough here? Chris says they have a sensational writer, J.T. Dolan. I'm embarrassed I haven't heard of him. Gotta love the subtle condescension. Chris recites his TV bona fides, including Law & Order, the SUV, obviously botching SVU, and probably becoming one of the most overworked Sopranos jokes ever. Sir Ben asks again, so there's a script. Then Carmine, unloading a canister of malaprops, says he wanted to surmise his interest, as opposed to, say, gauge, and then tailor the part to his specificities. Chris looks away, not angry or rejected, but kind of spaced out, hungover. Maybe he's selling that he's not selling, but I doubt it. Gotta wonder if it was the after-effects of his ski trip. Then they rhapsodize on his qualifications and ability to perform the role. They mention the film Sexy Beast. He, of course, calmly and graciously thanks them for their compliments. Sir Ben played a gangster villain from London in that film and was nominated for an Oscar. And I think the scene at the end, in the airplane with Chris, looking in between the seats, is a nod to a scene in Sexy Beast. Go back and look. Tell me if you see it too. Carmine brings up his short list of directors. Note Sir Ben's eyes. Ridley, as in Scott. Tobe Hooper. He pronounces it Tobe, 
but it's really Toby, or the next James Wan, of course, the guy behind Saw. Hooper himself was a legend in the horror genre, the guy behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist. Just as they get excited about the Saw franchise, they being Carmine and Chris, Sir Ben calls out to Betty, Lauren Bacall, the film noir stunner. Betty's her real name, by the way, and what her friends call her. Her name got changed to Lauren by her manager, Howard Hawks. Noah Tannenbaum told me that. She made movies for almost 70 years. As legendary as they come. And she showed up for The Sopranos. Sir Ben introduces them as Carmine Tazzi. Wondered if that meant anything. And Christopher. Chris says she was great in the haves and have-nots. The actual movie was called To Have and Have Not. And it was her first picture, based on an Ernest Hemingway novel of the same name. She says she's got a shiatsu in a few, but they, meaning her and Ben, should catch up later. And the only thing better than Carmine's line, enjoy your success, was her look. Just then, Sir Ben tries to cut from the meeting. One of a few times he tried to cut out of the meeting, actually. Says it was a scheduling conflict. But Chris says they'll walk him to his appointment at the luxury lounge. But not before putting a call into Murmur, who's home playing video games. Places a shipbox. But I guess, what'd you expect? Chris says he's chipping Major. Tells him to get on a plane. Chipping is when you occasionally use drugs, coke, heroin, but without becoming fully addicted. But enough that you're off the reservation with your recovery program track. Importantly, he's realizing that he's a have-not in this equation. Very much like Artie is, too. The only thing left for both of them at this point is acceptance. Which, as we'll see as the season unfolds, one is better at than the other. As they enter the lounge, Carmine tries to keep talking, feeling Sir Ben out, push this thing through, avoid a stagmire, the likes of which you've never seen. Says he's considering Sam Rockwell for the opposite role, an actor who needs no introduction in his own right, Academy Award winner. Name a movie. Odds are, Sam Rockwell was in it. I hitched my wagon to his star back in 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Carmine wonders about their chemistry. As fate would have it, they did a short film together in 2014 called All Hail the King. Anyway, all this as we begin to see the trappings of the mythological luxury lounge. 300 bottles of Moet. Cue the Andrew Bird course referenced back in the Everybody Hurts pod. Sir Ben initially refuses, possibly because he doesn't want those guys to feel like they can help themselves too. Also possible, but doubtful. Perhaps he's sensitive to Chris's sobriety. Chris sees Wilmer Valderrama in the distance, taking pictures in one corner, but mostly the two of them are just taken aback by the merch. Valderrama dated Lindsay Lohan around this era. Another name Christopher name drops later. 
But what a simple, impactful, elegant idea. Imagine if wise guys got access to a luxury lounge in Hollywood. What on earth happens next? There are stations with a potpourri of items, blankets, underwear, watches, devices. Chris wonders if the charges are shipped to the room. I actually really love the naivete he shows here and his transformation as he slowly recognizes that all this shit is free. I mean, celebs using shit is marketing spend. Get a picture with them wearing a certain pair of glasses, I mean, you're in business. Sure, it feels like an echo chamber for the privileged, but it's a corporate calculation that reaps dividends down the line. Love how the girls behind the counter, though blurred, are kind of rolling their eyes at Chris as he wonders whether all that stuff is free. We hear a video game trailer in the background, True Crime New York City. Nice touch. Also reminded me of the Sopranos video game that came out in 2006, Road to Respect. A forgettable game based on a character that was Pussy's illegitimate son. The script for the game wasn't written by Chase, but he oversaw it to make sure it didn't overlap with the core Sopranos story. Interestingly, the main character of the game was read by actor Christian Malin, who apparently was the second choice to play Christopher Moltisanti. When you realize there was a second choice for a key role like that, or any role for that matter, it makes you appreciate how different paths take shape. Or don't. It was kind of wild to go back and look at pictures of Christian and imagine him playing Chris. Back in the luxury lounge, as Chris stares away in shock, we hear the pop of a cork. Great touch to convey the combination of mind-blown and ideas percolating inside Chris. He inquires. So, Kingsley, they uh, do this all the time? So bad, actually. Sorry. A couple of times a year, mainly clustered around award seasons. Some of the items in the room have not aged so well. The rep from I River, for example, is desperate to sling something on Sir Ben. When Chris asks for one, they completely ignore him and hand it to Sir Ben instead. I River, still in business but sold to a larger conglomerate, was founded by former Samsung employees. They've since pivoted to more hi-fi offerings, but to quote Tony, average at best. Fitting then that Christopher would want one, right? Then, Sir Ben is called for another meeting, asks if they can catch up in New York. He's a real pro at getting out of these situations. You can tell it's probably not the first time he's had to do it. But Chris cries out that he hasn't been to all the tables. Another great touch of naivete. But also the sense that he's got plans for this fucking room later. Surely I thought he would find a way to get the key. Something. But how's he going to pull it off? Away from his home turf and all. Finally, Chris and Carmine photobomb an exit shot. And we cut to... Benny walking up to Tony and Silvio seated at Satrial's. Benny's looking a lot like Tony in the shirt he's wearing, by the way. Says Chris wanted him to take care of Tony while he was away. Slides over a newspaper rolled up with cash. 
and T's impressed by the one-week rake. Silvio calls Chris. Cecil Beetle-Moltisanti there. But wait, he cut out the over and over there. Oh. Reference, of course, to Cecil B. DeMille, a dawn of cinema. T slices some bills back his way and says to give it to Artie next time he's there to see his now properly titled girlfriend, Martina. Says to tell Artie to apply it to his tab. Interesting that it was weighing on Tony's mind enough to make good on it. But realize he's doing it with money stolen from Artie's restaurant. Think about how fucked up that is for a second. And appreciate the brilliance of the writing and world building. The continuity of it all. Speaking of, cut to Artie's. Interrogating his staff about the credit card thing. Two line cooks comment about Charmaine's assets. They are exceptionally, how do you say, up front, this particular scene. Kind of distracting, given the gravity of the situation. No pun intended. Artie says this is bigger than Moroccan olives or toilet paper. Clearly, past issues he's had to deal with with this crew. But whatever's going on has got to stop. Made me wonder why Artie didn't have cameras installed everywhere. Were those not commonplace then? Did Tony forbid them? That would have made for an interesting storyline. One guy on the team loses it over toilet paper. Someone who Chris might call a one-wipe cocksucker. And that sets Artie off too. Gives him license. Pulls the tablecloth. Says that what they're doing to him is nonstop ass rape a line attributed to Weiner's agent. Then he storms out. And Charmaine, or Maney, tries to save the situation. Asks them to clean up the mess so they can open. Saw that as a true testament to the strength of women, especially in crisis. Witnessing that now, especially this year, in my own wife, has just been incredible. Cut to moments later, outside Vesuvio. Marina on the phone, freaking out about the credit card police. And right there we realize, it all comes back to Tony. First the fire, now this. What's next? Benny and Martina had their thing going, and it's going to cost Artie big. Ever wonder why he wasn't immediately suspicious of Benny? Sitting at the bar all the time? being in cahoots with Martina? Ironically, we see that Benny's dining at Giovanni's. Tells her to chill. Says they're huge. Amex, that is. And will have to eat it. Goes back to dinner with his wife. His pregnant wife. Who we see for the first time. And is none too happy about Benny getting a call during dinner. Yet another instance of the regularness of life. Cut to the next morning at Artie's. Back at home, that is. Reading the headlines. We see our worst fears. How fitting is that? Weiner talks about the difficulty of writing headlines and rags for the show so you know everything is considered down to the granular level. 
He notices a rabbit in his vegetable garden. His eyes widen like Barry Bonds when he saw a fastball in the strike zone. That rabbit is fucked. You know right there that the focus of all his frustration with the Milky Way galaxy at this point is going to be unleashed on that rabbit. And yep, two seconds later, it takes a sniper rifle shell to the torso. Gotta say, nice aim, Artie. Also, makes you wonder right there, is that now somebody's dinner? Can it be, legally? Feels like a health code violation. Charmaine comes out, no firing in the borough limits. Do you want us in even more trouble? I brought those arugula seeds all the way back from Italy in my shaving kit. He's on a roll this episode. Also remember, the last time he brandished a gun like that, it was at Tony when he confronted him about the insurance fire. And we're well aware of Tony's love for small creatures and animals. So there's an interesting connection there. Imagine if he found out. Could have been Cosette. Cut to Christopher's morning after with Eden. I guess the second morning after. She won't get out of the bathroom. Tells him to fuck off. Apparently he was going through her purse. For cash or drugs, I figured. Maybe both. She calls him a guinea bastard. He kicks the door. But the main star here is that robe. That legendary robe. There's alcohol everywhere. He's drinking out of the bottle. Outside his window, we see a bowl sign. That's him looking east out at Pico Boulevard, signifying he didn't get a room with an ocean view. Thankfully, that bowling spot still exists. He puts in a call to room 812. Cut to Sir Ben Kingsley, leisurely reading against the backdrop of the Pacific Ocean. He did get the room with the ocean view. He answers the phone. Chris botches the honorific again, Sir Kingsley. And Sir Ben cuts him off. Says they're working on a New York meeting right now. But that's not why Chris is calling. He asks if he can get him into the luxury lounge. He's direct. But also, he's over the movie. He just wants free shit. A window, no doubt, to the scope of his mind. Unlike Tony, he's incapable of a little global thinking. Building for the future. For him, it's all about now, the short term, the instant gratification. Sir Ben says his publicist handles all that stuff. Got me thinking about the role of publicists, when to have them versus when not to. I think it comes down to when you've already self-generated buzz and your phone is ringing. Sir Ben is very frank. I don't know how my publicist can help you. I.e., you pay for a publicist, motherfucker. Also, note all the free shit he later says he's given away is ransacked and strewn all over the counter and floor behind him. There's a knock on the door. It's murmur. At this point, you see he's a real friend. Not many people would get on a plane on a moment's notice. That is, of course, assuming Chris isn't owed major back pay on something. Cut to the Vesuvio kitchen. Already talking it up with the line cooks. 
talking specifically about the difference between black truffle versus white. White truffle is the more rare, expensive type. They are more commonly found in Italy, and they're the more pungent of the two, so should be used sparingly. Black truffles are more commonly found in France and are generally used in sauces as opposed to garnish. But enough. What's this? Barefoot Contessa now. Artie says he's off to an investing club at The Learning Annex. The Learning Annex is one of the biggest adult education companies in the world. Well, was. It ceased operations a few years ago. One of its lecturers throughout its almost 40-year history? Current president, Donald Trump. On his way out, the alternate hostess, Sandy, mentions that Martina was showing off Calvia sandals. Super pricey. Important to note here that we're getting clear evidence about why Vesuvio is struggling. Like Chris, it would seem Artie's got one foot out the door, letting other people handle the cooking, the core dishes especially. Moments later, he confronts Martina. She immediately cries. Says he's been mean to her ever since he figured out she wasn't going to sleep with him. Then she attacks him. Says her and Benny laugh at him and all the money they steal from his stupid customers. Kind of sinister shit. Eastern Promises vibes or something. Certainly disproportionate to anything he ever did or didn't do for her. Cut to later that night. Artie takes matters into his own hands. Mr. Invincible. He's outside Benny's house. He's got that marine-style shingle siding. The place looks like it could be out of Sleepless in Seattle or something. He rings the bell four times, five, six, seven. He's pumped, like pre-fight Rocky III in the second fight against Clubber Lang pumped. Love how he blows snot out of his nostrils, readying. Need all the oxygen you can get. Benny opens, drowsy. Artie wants to talk. Benny says his wife's pregnant, needs to sleep. Can't this wait? Artie immediately brings up the credit card con. Benny steps out, says the little trick got greedy. Throws her under the bus. Artie pushes him. Benny, again, amazed at the restraint on some of these guys some of the time. Initial restraint, I should say. Says he was going to cut Artie in. But that's off the table now. Artie identifies himself as regular fucking people before giving him another, more aggressive shove. You and Tony and that thing of yours can run roughshod over whatever you like, but those of us that play by the rules have to stand idly by and make way. That shove was for all the Joe Jerkoffs out there. This time, though, Benny doesn't care. He's been down this road before, getting touched up by Phil. Fuck if he's gonna let Artie get away from this unscathed. And He gives him a good scathing, but Artie's adrenaline is on another level, and he destroys Benny. Poor fucking Benny. That's twice now. Made me wonder how he had no problem with a wise guy like Benny, but struggled with Jean-fucking-Philippe? Artie finishes things off by spitting into Benny's open, bleeding mouth. The staccato of just saying that is unmatched by the scene we see. Probably one of the most gangster moves in the entire series by someone who wasn't a gangster. At least not in the traditional sense. 
He finishes early. He has so much rage that he shadow boxes a little more. Get every last bit out before leaving. A leave your baggage at the door moment of sorts. He walks to his car, sliding from side to side, and we cut to Sir Ben in a robe in an elevator, calmly listening to Muzak. Actually has therapeutic qualities. When you're alone in an elevator, the sounds can be transportive and extend time, stretch moments from one to the next. Then, the elevator opens to Chris and Murmur, and we get one of the best, Ho! There he is! You'll ever find anywhere. Ho! There he is! How you doing? Great, thanks. Mostly because of the context of who it was directed at here, but so great. How you doing? Of course, more a statement than a question. Moltisanti's tank top is so bad, it's good. Juxtaposed with Sir Ben's pre-massage robe and Murmur's Hilfiger getup. Chris brings up the luxury lounge again. Gotta commend him. He does follow up like a motherfucker. Chris starts to use the only talent he's got. Intimidation brought forth by the family that backs him in his line of work. And Sir Ben figures it out quick. After all, he did play an unruly gangster in Sexy Beast. Also, as we've talked about before, the things that happen in elevators on this show. Add this to the list. Sir Ben tries to change the subject, deflect, asks about the genesis of the name Murmur, never ever imagining it was a literal nickname because of an actual defect. But Chris won't leave it. They keep handing shit out, the coolest shit in the world, to the people who need it the least. When they exit, Sir Ben turns around and says they may have misunderstood him. He gives most of that stuff away to homeless shelters, the rest to charity auctions. His own level of hypocrisy and bullshit, no doubt. And fittingly, Chris calls bullshit. Something was earmarked for his godson. He heard it himself. What about that? And Chris does have a point there. There's nothing there Sir Ben couldn't easily buy for his godson, and then some. To which Sir Ben admits it's obscene. But it's nothing compared to award show baskets, oftentimes in excess of $30,000 worth of giveaways. Redirecting his own complicity creates a light bulb inside Chris that will have costs for Sir Ben's dear friend, Betty. Everything's connected. Before leaving for his massage, he calls it all lolly. It's just money. C'est la fucking V. And that's Sir Ben Kingsley. Chris yells, We'll get you that script. Cut to Stugatz 2. Anchor in the water. Somebody about to die? Makes you think of pussy every time, right? Tony at sea with Carm, Artie, and Charmaine. Calm waters, but not for T and Artie. Tony confronts Artie about what happened with Benny. Not confront so much as, have you lost your fucking mind? Artie asks how Tony could let that happen 
at his place. And Tony says he never would have let it happen had he known. Key question. Was he innocent? Or did he know? He scammed Vesuvio before. There's precedent. The whole thing's fucked up. Their relationship. But in a lot of ways, it's like a lot of relationships. Asymmetrical taking and asymmetrical giving. We hurt the people we love most. Artie says, sure. This is all just him falling victim to Benny Fazio, criminal mastermind. Another overworked Sopranos joke that, quite frankly, I don't think ever gets old. You can just imagine how highly he must think of him after giving him that proper, unrelenting beatdown. Artie brings up his dad. Beautiful moment. Used to say, hard work, you'll see, pays off in the end. He's reflecting back on roads that diverged in the wood, right? The road less traveled by is supposed to make all the difference. Sad truth. A lot of times it doesn't. At least not the difference you expect or seek going in. He starts crying. Emotion in small doses and no more. Carmela comes out with a plate of food like you wouldn't believe. Who's hungry? Perfect Sopranos stab of emotion coupled with regularness of life mundanity. The sacred and the mundane. And we cut to Chris, eating room service. In that robe. First, the great overhead shot, an angle of him from the balcony looking in. Then the close-up. He answers a phone. It's Carmine. Sir Ben passed. At first, the way he says it, for a blink, you think he died. Carmine, by the way, is sitting in the city, dining al fresco at Cafe Palermo on Mulberry Street. Chris sort of blames himself, says he tried everything, which is complete horseshit. He didn't do jack. Then gets up, destroys the glasses he was given, and we cut to lots of fast cuts this episode, short burst scenes, momentum. Cut to Benny, face destroyed again. He wants to kill Artie. Tony de-escalates. Asks about Benny's son. Gives him a big bear hug. Tony's message is simple. You don't shit where you eat. And you really don't shit where I eat. So effective. He warns him to bury it. And also to make good, doing his planned event at Vesuvio instead of Giovanni's. Insult to injury. Tony's running his face through the mud over this, getting in the last few cracks at his broken jaw. Speaking of broken jaws, cut to Lauren Bacall outside the Beverly Hilton, with an escort holding her gift basket, the vaunted gift basket that she got for hosting the Show West Awards, now known as CinemaCon, by the way. She takes the basket to walk a few more steps to her limo when Chris pulls up in a mask and jacks the basket. She resists initially, puts up a bit of a fight, but he cracks her right in the mouth and knocks her to the ground. How low can you possibly go? 
Chris lets you know right there. They wreck another car on the way out, and L.A. got its Moltisanti score treatment. Jesus, my fucking arm! Always wondered if that was a reference to a past role or character. Turns out she was in an episode of The Rockford Files, and her character there had to be helped up off the ground, too. Symmetry. Cut to a close-up of a Vesuvio twofer ad. Not quite something you might see sketched up by the folks at Sterling Cooper, but hey. The tagline, affordable elegance. Oxymoronic. Also, the address is listed. 1413 Bloomfield Avenue in Verona. The newspaper, Verona Cedar Grove Times. A local rag. Then the camera pulls back to reveal the staff glaring at it, disapprovingly. Note the classical music. Another paradox with the Tuferad. But it worked. Sandy says there's a line outside. Anticipation starts to build. Artie's all business, black eye and all. Push the scampi. Wholesaler says it's got to get eaten by today. The details. And on top of it all, he's got the Fazio party in the banquet room. Tony delivered. They open the doors to a cross-section of the senior citizen community. The coupon clippers. Hey, just like Pauly, remember? Even after scoring half a mil. First question, you have low-salt selections. Makes you really have to dig deep and remember why you even got into this business in the first place. Forget the business. Even for those of us who cook at home, how demoralizing is it when those you cook for immediately reach for the sauce bottle or the salt as soon as they take a bite? Meanwhile, over in the banquet room, Benny's ma isn't feeling Vesuvio. Wants things off the Giovanni menu. Note the Furio lookalike over Benny's shoulder. Artie walks over and shakes Benny's hand. The visual of him towering over a seated Benny was intentional. It's an infographic of sorts. Artie owns him now, thanks to Tony. And as such, he pulls no punches. Offers him a martina. Like a martini, but from Albania. In front of his parents and pregnant wife. Benny's face. What do you think makes him more mad right there? That Artie kicked his ass? Or that he can't do anything about it? Well, We don't have to wait long. He heads to the back, attacks from behind, shoves Artie's arm into a vat of marinara sauce. Note the bubbles immediately before he gets drowned in it. That's more than a beatdown. That's a form of torture right there. Turns out, something grave does happen to Artie. All that screen time usually equates to bad things. But thankfully, here, not always death. Cut to an airplane. Chris and Murmur getting situated in first class. Carmine left early, recall. Never understood his fucking hurry. He really has someplace better to go than procuring Sir Ben for his feature film. Chris busts out a print edition of Variety. Lauren Bacall's Travise on the cover. Chris looks like Change the industry after all. 
whether he intended to or not. Or perhaps not in the way he originally envisioned. Industry perks are being re-examined. Murmur, reading a Sky Mall, and Chris laugh about it all. But oh, the simple pleasure of flipping through a Sky Mall catalog on an airplane. Just then, gulp, Sir Ben and his assistant board the flight. Seriously, what are the fucking odds? They sit behind them in first class. Chris gets some form, some kind of one-upsmanship here. The classic Chris look back in between the seats. Again, I saw that as a nod to Sexy Beast. Overall, perfect little Sopranos memory that's a joy to revisit every time. Never gets old. Getting closer to the end, back at Vesuvio, Tony's alone again. Carm and her parents were supposed to join, but he tells Artie Hugh and Carm are on the outs. Hughes had a lifetime of her bullshit. Sans today, it turns out. Note the cast on Artie. No amount of bandage spared. Tony calls it a meat hook. Mary and Carm show up. Mary's delighted to see Artie. Her big night out. She then reads the menu word for word. Contrast that with Tony and the guys. Could recite the menu in their sleep. Also, note how Carm hands Artie flowers for his hand. A small gesture for ingratiating himself and being the hired help in this world of theirs. Tony contemplates saying something to his mother-in-law, but then overhears Artie dropping his same high chair line on another young couple. He goes to the back to talk to Artie about his problem. Says he's got a number for a good psychiatrist. Would he really send him to Dr. Melfi? I feel like that's too close to home. It's got to be one of her colleagues. Then, he drops the Ojibwe concept on Artie. And Artie reflects that right back to him. Calls him Bodhisattva. That line is fucking priceless. A Bodhisattva, of course, is any person on a path to Buddhahood. Tony references the first season, the shit with his mom, the storm, the tree. And how when he was at his lowest point, he chose this place to come with his family to dine. Then he drops a business bestseller on Artie. Lovingly, always on a different level with Artie. In business, sometimes shit happens. The playing field changes. Whatever. And you gotta do whatever you gotta do to keep your dick up. Jack Welch over here. Then he mentions that nobody wants to hear him talk. The corny jokes, stupid stories. Gotta say, this echoes Carmela talking to Tony about how everybody laughs at his stupid jokes because they have to. But as a corollary, patrons have to too, out of fear that he'll spit in their food or worse. When Tony leaves... I love how Artie leans back onto anything he can find to take in what T just said after he's gone. His own religious confirmation, if you will, after being corroborated by two people closest to him. The truth hurts. 
cut to Tony checking out boats in a magazine in the back of the Bing. Smoke everywhere. As Mr. Blow Smoke walks in. Returned, fresh from his trip to L.A. Worth mentioning, Chris had one foot out the door. Got his wish. Go to Tinseltown. Got his meetings. But had one foot out the door on that, too. A new beginning. A dream. Actualized. And what does he do? Regress and rob. Tells T about his journey. But mostly about the things people in the business get. Absolutely fucking gratis. He shares the spoils. First class vouchers and a trip to Australia. Served on a crocodile Dundee cap. But really, when is T ever actually going to do that? Says it looks like Sarasota. Not good enough. He rifles through the bag, looking for shit he likes. Something better. Always got to tax that ass. Chris starts to look like he's going to get taxed more than he envisioned. Handed over the one thing he didn't want, and now it's going to cost him big. He asks how things went with the movie star. And Chris says he was all about it. But he doesn't think he's right. The level of bullshit. Like the dogs and pigs that snort truffles in the ground. Just shovels of it. But says they made some great contacts. That fucking word. Contacts. Propping up people's hopes and dreams since time immemorial. Chris also mentions he saw Lindsay Lohan. Calls her a total piece of ass. We, however, were not so fortunate. So maybe that was bullshit too. Like T asked Pussy on the boat. She even really exist? T's irritated. Can't help but think things wouldn't have gone south if Chris had been around to control his crew. But Chris says he let him go. How can it be his fault? Demonstrating accountability and leadership at every turn over here. T brings up the loss of focus again. Chris parries and counterpunches with the Adriana card. And Tony immediately calls him on it. How many times are you going to use that? Kind of get the feeling he's going to keep using it all the way to a bad place. Cut to Artie, counting receipts. A couple sits down, opened a bottle. But the problem is, kitchen's closed. Charmaine pushes, Artie relents, goes back to his roots, and just cooks for a change. Stays in the kitchen, like T said. Great metaphor, too. Sometimes when things fall apart so bad from all sides and there's no end in sight, the best solution is just to start over. Go back to the basics. To do your own version of what Jerry Maguire did and write a mission statement. Artie says they're eating what I give them. And we come full circle. Artie pulls out what we immediately assume is a rabbit. The rabbit. Then he gets his composition book. The OG one. The one that started it all. Put him firmly on this path. It says Angelo Bucco in beautiful lettering on the cover. He turns to the page that reads Coniglio on top. 
That's rabbit. And there you have it. The cuts to show the different elements of cooking, the mise en place, the technique, the details. Metaphor for how this whole show is put together with the raw ingredients of life. Whatever's in the fridge. The sentimentality, the close-ups, the pullbacks, the vibe, the emotion, the simplicity. Cue the music. One of the most difficult techniques or ways to play the guitar. Vesuvio isn't just an anchor for Tony, as evidenced by the dropping of his anchor on the boat when Artie was on it. It's an anchor for us and the show. Finally, another airplane. The two hitmen on their way back to the boot. Next to them, of course, we see David Chase reading. Another cameo with an old country theme. Last time we saw him, of course, was commendatory. I'd like to think he's reading the magazine for well-read men, like Christopher. Here, it's also nice to daydream about how I might go about interrupting him if I got a chance to sit next to him on a plane. The guys are looking at the merch they picked up while in the States. Fossil watches, Mont Blanc pens, their own version of a luxury lounge. The whole of the United States. Microcosms. We fade out to the three hitmen. There's three again. And Chase, after all, decides who lives and dies. So he's hitman number one. I've internalized this moment as Chase sailing away to the finish line of this brilliant thing he created. And we go to black on a louder, fuller, classical guitar solo, Recuerdos de la Alhambra, played by Pepe Romero. Memories of Alhambra. Of course, the palace in Granada, a luxury lounge of its own. Watching this whole show is its own version of a luxury lounge for us. One cashmere sweater after another of intrigue, warmth, comfort, horror, shock, awe, delivered in a gift bag called HBO. Though we got to pay for the subscription. Unless, of course, you cop it from your friend. Don't be an enabler. Anyway, that's all I got. Thanks for listening, as always. See you next time. Have a change in one